I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast on Faster Skier. As we all know, the COVID-19 global pandemic has left the world scrambling to adapt to the many challenges of slowing the spread of the virus. In the world of Olympic sport, the ripple effect has disrupted the efforts of anti-doping agencies worldwide to conduct the testing normally relied upon to hold athletes accountable to abiding by the rules surrounding banned and controlled substances. Most international anti-doping agencies have halted testing since mid-March, as the invasive and close contact nature of collecting samples poses a threat to both athletes and testers. This causes obvious concern that athletes inclined to cheat might abuse the situation, taking advantage of the opportunity to use illegal substances to improve their performance potential when competition is able to resume. To address the lack of testing, the U.S. anti-doping agency, USADA, rolled out a pilot virtual testing program called Project Believe 2020, where athletes could provide a urine sample and blood spot test with an anti-doping agent present on a Zoom or FaceTime call. For further insight into this topic, Faster Skier connected with two-time Olympian and longtime U.S. ski team member Noah Hoffman, who has become involved with USADA's anti-doping education program since retiring from skiing. Hoffman also recently wrapped up his second year at Brown University, and we discussed his academic interests and the experience of being a college student during the COVID shutdown. Yeah, so maybe we'll start there as far as uh, your, you just finished up your second year, is that right? Second year, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, halfway through. That's awesome. And um, what have, have you had a, like, had a major declare the whole time? Has any of that changed? Um, and what's, what's that kind of the first two years in a nutshell experience been like? Yeah, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do coming in. And I, I will still say I don't, I've, although I've narrowed it down a little bit, um, there's kind of, uh, I'm interested in economics. I'm interested in, in studying equity issues. Um, there's, so there's a couple of different degrees that I could, I could get a straight economics degree. I could get an applied mathematics and economics degree. Um, I can get an economics and public policy degree. So I'm kind of looking at all three of those options, but I think I'm probably leaning towards applied mathematics and economics. Um, but it's been, it's been a really good experience at Brown. Obviously COVID made challenging, made it challenging for college students all over the country. And I will say that I think at no point did I feel like I had an advantage being older in school quite like I did when COVID hit because, you know, it, it, having experience living independently and kind of not feeling like school, not, not having my entire life revolve around school. My social life is not centered around school meant that school was really just this academic thing for me. And so moving online didn't feel like that big of a change. I feel like I got just as much out of my classes. And I know that for most students, huge a huge part of the college experience is the is everything that goes off goes on in addition to the classes and for me that all comes maybe away from brown and so i feel very fortunate to be enduring you know the changes wrought by the pandemic to the academic calendar as somebody who's uh you know not looking for that whole embodiment of experience in college do you think it's kind of presenting in terms of being somebody like if you go that applied math route, right, and you're looking at economics right now could be a really interesting time for all that, right? In yeah, ways, I mean, it's especially like presenting from, this almost like an opportunity. Yeah. 
for sure. I mean, especially from an equity issue that I think that what's being coming very clear is the, the ways that this pandemic, you know, disproportionately affects people who uh, are lower income people uh, who identify with a minority group, be it race, gender, uh, you know, sexual orientation, anything. And so uh, I think that this is just furthering my desire to like do design a career focused on making the world a more equitable place. Um, which I also feel like has tied into my work with global athlete and kind of equity issues in sport or what I view as equity issues in sport, which is, uh, increasing the athlete voice, increasing athlete power, um, in basically increasing labor rights in global athletics. When things started to shut down, you headed to Park City. I did. I I stopped by. I, it was. I mean, it was a pretty frantic time, right, and there was right. everything was shutting down, and it was not clear whether like travel was going to be restricted in any way. And so I I, did, I tried to get out of the East Coast as soon as I possibly could because I knew that if if I didn't need to be in the East for classes, that I wanted to be in the West because. Because I miss the mountains and I miss the, I miss the desert and I, I miss I, my mountain bike was out in the west. Um, my touring skis were out in the west, uh, and so I just wanted to be out here. Um, so I came out as soon as I possibly could. I ended up actually coming to Montrose for a couple of days and renting a car and driving to Park City. But uh, due to some uh, incredibly generous friends, uh, my partner and I were given a or or we were able to use uh an apartment for the rest of my semester so it ended up being two months that we were in this place and uh just got to stay there and it was you know had had fast internet it had uh access to the outdoors it was just the perfect place to 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 socially at distance so i feel very very fortunate to have an incredible network that kind of takes care of me <laughs> um and Let's talk a little bit about um, your role with USADA after you kind of transitioned out of your your own career. Um, what has that role been, and, uh, and and what has that looked like over the last few years? Yeah, I got super super lucky. I met my now boss. Uh, her name's Tammy. She heads the education team at USADA uh, at Olympic Processing in Korea. So the U.S. Olympic Committee set up Olympic and Paralympic Committee set up. Uh, processing in Seoul before we headed over to Pyeongchang for the games. Processing is where you go and get all your uniforming and you get all the information that you need uh, to know for the games. And part of that is anti-doping education, which Tammy was running. And I was just chatting with her and uh, I think I gave her a little more time than most other athletes because I'm maybe invested more in in anti-doping issues and and just curious in general. And uh, so she she said, you know, do you mind if I reach out to you after the games uh, to see if you want to get more involved? And I said, yeah, that'd be fine. So she did. After the game, she emailed me and I said, well, you know, the one thing is I'm retiring. Uh, and she said, oh, well, that's interesting because we're starting this new program uh, called, um, it, it, yeah, Athlete Presenter Model of Education, um, where we want former athletes to present to current athletes uh, to give them the anti-doping education that they need to be compliant with the rules. And 
you can't do that as a current athlete because of clear conflict of interest. You can't be working for USADA when you're a current athlete. Uh, and so I got to be part of this original cohort. It was just me and uh, Greta Niemannis, who is an, uh, a, a paracyclist. Um, and Greta is amazing. I've had a great time getting to know her. And the two of us got to kind of help shape this program uh, where we we went to Colorado Springs for a week in the May after I retired, May of 2018, and I got got trained because obviously you know the biggest thing about educating on anti doping is you can't be giving inaccurate information. But at the same time, we're able when we when we present to athletes, we're able and we present to both like current elite athletes who have been uh, registered testing pool athletes for a decade and have been tested you know dozens if not. Uh, hundreds of times and who just need to be updated on like changes in the rules for the coming year uh, all the way down to junior athletes who are just entering the elite sports world have never been tested the idea of peeing in a cup is terrifying to them um, and so it you know we we kind of span the gamut on who we who we present to and Greta and I are able to use our experience as RTP athletes, as athletes that have been tested, you know, out of competition many, many times by USADA, in competition all over the world. Um, and we can relate to what the athletes are going through. We can especially relate, you know, I'm like I presented to the New York City Marathon elites uh, the day before the marathon. Uh, I guess it was in 2018. And... You know, I can, that's the biggest, you know, marathoners don't compete that often. That's the biggest race of the year, probably, for most of those athletes. And having to sit through USADA education the day before you compete is is really inconvenient. And yet it's super important because that's the only time that we can get them face-to-face. -face. And New York Roadrunners mandates that, they're, that, they're, that they take this education if they're going to be eligible for, for their prize money and for their appearance fee and all that. Um, and so the athletes don't necessarily want to be there, but you know, at the same time, we see elite athletes too many, too often testing positive for uh, for substances or you know using a prohibited method that they didn't know is prohibited. And so education is clearly important, and clearly we still have work to do on the education side to make sure that those instances don't happen. And so it's a double-edged sword of like, Greta and I understand the demands on an athlete's time, especially the day before your biggest event of the year. We also understand the need for this education. And so it's been really uh, rewarding work to try to, to kind of thread that needle and, and design, help, help USADA put together a, an education model that is both effective and respectful of the athletes and really tailored to athletes. I mean, USADA, I think more than any sports governance body that I've interacted with is athlete-centric, and I really appreciate that about them, and it's why I'm proud to work with them in these, uh, with with education and on the Rodchenkov Act and things like that. And um, I think that making their education as athlete-centric as possible has been uh has been really rewarding, and I think we still have, you know, more ground to cover. And through this process, um, you've been exposed to athletes from all different sports, maybe in ways that you haven't previously in terms of just getting to interact with people and learning more about their sport and maybe the state of testing surrounding their sport. 
Uh, what have what have been some of your takeaways from that in terms of has that influenced like your perception of the state of testing and clean sport across various sports? Yeah, so it, it you know it's really interesting in that some elite athletes the doping is not really on the radar and it's not how people cheat. I mean, there are other ways that people cheat in in other sports. So it, a big one is that I have gotten to present that now a couple of times is to USA equestrian athletes. And I've gotten to present to like a, a group of young and upcoming dressage athletes. Mm. And these athletes have been acutely aware of performance enhancing substance use for the animals, for the horses throughout their career. But I don't think the idea of performance enhancing drugs for themselves has ever really been on their radar. And so for them, it's, it's just letting them know that you look, you are subject to testing and these rules apply to you. Even if you don't, you can't, you can't think of a way that you would ever want to cheat with them. That's fine. But you still, you know, you, this, the rules surrounding recreational drug use, marijuana being prohibited in competition, um, supple- the danger of supplements, like you can still be selected for testing and you still have to be compliant with the rules and you can still have your career, you know, tainted or ruined. You can have even the consequences for a positive test, as we all know, are, are massive. And so these, in some ways, the education is harder, I think, for sports where doping is not on the radar because the rules still apply to them and yet they just don't even think about it. So they might go to the pharmacy and grab some Sudafed because they've got a cold and they don't want to be congested while they're, you know, while they're competing. And yet Sudafed is prohibited in competition and they don't even know that. It doesn't even, it doesn't even occur to them to check the status of the medication because they don't, they're not thinking about it as performance enhancing and they're not thinking about it as doping and they're not aware of doping scandals in their sport. And so that's been one of my huge takeaways is like the, the different need for education across sports and how in some ways, yeah, the education is, actually more important in sports where doping is not prevalent. <laughs> Has it influenced your, uh, or changed any of your perspective in terms of uh, the state of clean sport and skiing specifically? I think overall, I mean, you know, as skiers, we are very aware of the, the challenges with the anti-doping landscape, and we're very aware of the, of the international doping scandals because they all seem to involve us. Even the cycling ones seem to bleed over, but, you know, clearly cross-country skiing and cycling are the two sports hardest hit, two Olympic sports hardest hit by doping in the last 15 or 20 years. And I think that I had a belief as an athlete that the entire system was broken and working with USADA has given me the belief that the international system is broken and that the US system might be underfunded, but that they are, you know, led by Travis Tiger, the organization, you know, responsible for clean sport in this country is doing everything they possibly can to ensure clean sport. And I think that's true in a lot of other countries too. I think that a lot of the other national anti-doping agencies are uh, are also very effective. I think the problem lies with the uh, you know with the inconsistent nature of the funding and the inconsistent nature of the prioritization of anti-doping, the inconsistent nature of you know the way that sport is viewed, um, kind of the culture around sport in different countries, uh, you know the inconsistent nature of the of the willingness of the 
of the leadership, you know, the, I'm talking about political leadership of a country right. to engage in corruption. Um, so I think that there's so, so several things. One is that we we need to fix the global system. We need more consistency. We need more funding. We need better uh, better coordination across borders. We need tougher sanctions for institutional doping. We need better investigations and better intelligence. And then we also need better science because there is, it is true that the there is more money in doping in a lot of sports than there is in anti-doping and that it is hard to keep up. And uh, I mean, that's why like, you know, I'm going to plug the Rodchenkov Act every chance I get because right. I fully believe that we need federal law enforcement and that doping is fraud that the athletes that are that are competing clean are being defrauded by the cheaters and it's no different than any other type of fraud that is prosecuted by the federal government and federal law enforcement not only should have a place in anti-doping but needs to have a place in anti-doping if we're going to have clean sport on that kind of global perspective we recently we looked at the the WADA annual report on testing. Um, and something that we noticed, it's like cross-country skiing accounts for the majority of testing in skiing. And that's sort of universal in terms of USADA, in terms of the um, International Olympic Winter Sports Federation and FIS. Um, and yet with 3,000 blood and urine tests, there's, there's seven adverse analy analytical findings, AAFs. Um, does this, to you, does this illustrate clean sport or is this sort of what you're talking about in terms of um, some inconsistencies or or, uh, or is it ability of athletes and, and doctors and coaches to kind of disguise and beat tests? What is that? What are your thoughts on that? In some cases, I hear, I hear the number seven AAFs in cross-country skiing. It was that in cross-country skiing. I, yeah. I haven't looked closely yeah. before. So seven AAFs in cross-country skiing. And you think about, you know, there's only... There's only like 350 World Cup skiers in any given year. Um, that actually, I, yeah. I haven't looked. That actually seems like we're doing a pretty good job of catching those athletes. Um, I, I don't hear seven and be like, oh, that's, you know, that that's because most athletes are getting away with it. At the same time, you know, you look at the doping scandals of the last seven or eight years, most, you know, <laughs> namely the World Championship scandal in right. 2019 and the Sochi Olympic Russian state sponsored scandal and not a, you know none of those athletes tested positive not a right. single one of them and so i i think that you know we need more testing we need better testing yes absolutely the you know the testing works a little bit as evidenced by the 7 AAFs but you know we also desperately need better intelligence we need better enforcement um, we need, you know, most of all, we need better systems in place to tell people, tell, to tell, you know, the perpetrators of systematic, whether it's state sponsored or team sponsored or national governing body sponsored, but any sort of systematic doping, that if that systematic doping is not tolerated and that anybody who's involved in sports governance Un, you know, who's overseeing a systematic doping scandal is not welcome on the in Olympic sport or Paralympic sport. Period. Um, it is one thing 
you know, I do, I'm not in favor of lifetime bans for athletes who test positive, but administrators who are orchestrating state sponsored or other sorts of systematic doping regimes uh, are not welcome in Olympic sport. And that includes, you know, all of the Russian Olympic committee, as long as they continue to uh, undermine clean sport. And until they, you know, until there is real teeth uh, in the ability to, you know, to deter systematic doping, kind of the one-off athlete doping is almost irrelevant when you've got an entire country or an entire team doping. Um, you know, athletes that are microdosing to evade tests on their own dime and, and you know, within their own little universe, like, they, you know, I think that the sanctions and the testing uh, is relatively appropriate for them. We need more testing and more funding, but that's not where the big problems lie. The big problems lie in the systematic doping at the moment. Let's transition a little bit to the current situation in terms of lack of testing uh, during the COVID crisis. So pretty much across the globe, it seems like that's been halted um, to protect the health of the athletes, to protect the health of the testers, also because labs are often overwhelmed. Um, and that's been true in countries, including Russia, since mid-March. Um, and it, and some people have kind of spoken about this being a major concern as far as um, Travis Tiger said to the New York Times, like that's the reason that we run year-round out-of-competition testing programs is essentially like the, this is almost more important or as important as the in in competition um, and, and that this has put a, a serious strain on anti-doping. Um, there's also been some comments on the flip side. There's uh, the National Anti-Doping Organization's chief executive, Jorge Leva, um, has kind of commented that um, it doesn't necessarily open the floodgates for athletes to begin using illegal substances or at higher dosages. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of um, just this issue with a lack of testing right now um, and what it means in terms of clean sport? Yeah, so my first thought is that athletes are role models and leaders in society and that they need to exhibit that leadership in a public health setting first and foremost before clean sport or before competitions are prioritized, public health has to be prioritized because athletes are leaders, athletes are icons, athletes are role models, and they need to take that responsibility seriously. And that goes for the entire sports community, including the anti-doping organizations. And I think, so do I think that, you know, DCOs, doping control officers should be showing up at athletes' doors right now in the midst of a global pandemic? Absolutely not. I think that that's dangerous from a public health perspective, especially as more evidence comes out that transmission is mostly happening, you know, people to people. It's not happening on surfaces. Um, if you're, you know, in the same small bathroom as an athlete, watching them provide a urine sample, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're spreading germs and, and air particle, you know, particles in the air and, and that's not worth it. Uh, and so with that in mind, you know, that poses a huge challenge for anti-doping, uh, efforts worldwide. And I think highlights the need for innovation in the anti-doping world. It highlights the need for, for more funding so that 
uh, we can make, you know, better lab tests, better science. We can detect smaller and smaller traces of substances so that if a, if a athlete does choose to use a prohibited substance during this time where they don't think they're going to get tested, that they can, you know, that, that we can still detect that substance when testing does become available. Uh, if it's if we have sensitive enough tests, um, you can you know detect a substance that's in the system that was taken longer ago. Um, so more funding, uh, more prioritization from global sports governance, from national sports governance, um, and from uh, from the public in terms of governmental support, uh, because I truly believe that there is, that, that the government has an interest and in, in, should be investing in clean sport. Um, they do. Part of USADA's budget comes from the federal government. Uh, I would love to see uh, more funding for, for USADA and more funding for WADA, uh, which should come with uh, reform at WADA that would guarantee more independence and a bigger voice for athletes. Um, so that's one need. The other is, uh, I mentioned need for innovation. So USADA is doing that with project believe, which one of the articles that you sent me from the New York times was on, um, which is where they are sending testing kits to athletes, both, uh, dry blood spot sampling and, um, urine sample collection kits. And then, at some point, randomly after the athletes have received those kits uh, on any given day during the athlete's one-hour window, uh, they will call the athlete if the athlete doesn't um, – the athlete has to be available uh, during that one-hour window. That's the point of the one-hour window, just like they would be if the person was – if the doping control officer was showing up in person. And then the athlete provides a sample on camera. Uh, they, they don't actually pee on camera, but they, they pee in a bathroom of which the doping control officer has been given a tour, uh, on video before the athlete goes in to make sure there are no other people in the bathroom to make sure that there's no, you know, bag of, of stored urine in the bathroom. Um, and then the athlete provides a sample and then, uh, on camera tests the temperature of that sample to make sure that the urine is at body temperature um, and then seals the sample on camera and, uh, and then takes a dried blood spot, uh, via a new device that USADA has helped develop called the tap device. No longer need a phlebotomist to collect a blood sample with this device. You can just stick it to your arm, press a button, some very small needles go into your arm and a small enough, uh, a very small drop of blood, but enough to collect a dry blood spot gets uh, absorbed by the device itself and the athlete just puts the cap back on and sends it to the lab and the athlete has to do nothing uh, with it. And so that, you know, that device alone, it's not, you're not able to do as many tests as you would with three vials of, of actual blood if you had a phlebotomist collecting the blood. But uh, it's a huge step forward because the, the cost uh, is somewhere north of $500 for USADA to collect a single uh, a single, you know, to do a blood test on an athlete is north of $500. Yeah. And, uh, with this device, you can all of a sudden have a doping control officer, just bring it with them to any urine test. Um, you no longer need the phlebotomist and you bring the cost down to less than $10. And so in now you can 
you know, at basically collect blood at every single, uh, every single time that urine is being collected. And so that's, you know, with this, with this project believe with the remote testing, the athlete is doing that on camera, stealing that and then sending both the dry blood spot spot and the urine sample, uh, putting it into a sealed box. And then USADA is sending a courier to pick it up. So no con, no human contact, uh, needed. The lab can still, uh, gets what they need. And there's, you know, it's, it's not perfect by any means, but, uh, it's the type of innovation that is, you know, is needed in every industry right now when things are totally in upheaval due to this pandemic. And I, you know, I think that it also is, is opening the door for, for cheaper testing in the future, for more testing in the future. And it is something, you know, parts of this are going to last beyond this pandemic. And so we need more, uh, more innovation like that. Um, and I'm, you know, proud that, that, that USADA is pioneering that program and they're working with some national anti-doping agencies in other countries to roll out similar programs. Again, it highlights the discrepancy between different anti-doping systems because athletes, you know, so, so far that program is only voluntary, but, um, they did not have any trouble getting athletes to sign up and they got some of the biggest names in sport to sign up, which is huge for these athletes that are, you know, that are in high demand and that are, that are at the you know top of their sport to come forward and say, look, I want to be part of this innovative anti-doping system during this really uncertain time. And, and what I read, I think it said there's 15 athletes who volunteered for that pilot program. And uh, the names that I saw were, Emma Coburn, Katie Ledecky, Allison Felix. So some of these really noteworthy summer Olympians. Is that the focus right now in terms of since that summer Olympics is kind of, uh, well, it's later than it normally would be uh, by a year, but it's still kind of on the horizon sooner than winter or is that uh, is the testing happening kind of across? No, so the, the I mean, I, I believe that this program was put into motion before the Olympics were delayed. So they were okay. really scrambling to say, oh, the Olympics are coming up in four months. We have to figure out a way to test these athletes. Right. right. Uh, and so absolutely, the, the focus was on Summer Olympics. And the Olympics being delayed by a year doesn't change that the, the focus will be on Summer Olympics because they have, you know, a little bit more time now before the Winter Olympics. But this was only an eight-week uh it was an eight-week trial with okay. athletes who volunteered to be part of it. And so that's winding down now. And, and I don't know where USADA goes next, but it was, I think, a great success. Um, and so I'm hoping that it becomes, um, you know, I don't know if they can move it immediately into non-mandatory, or sorry, into mandatory testing um, where you don't, they're not just taking the 15 athletes who volunteered. And I, I think they had, they asked those 15 athletes to volunteer. It wasn't like, they only got 15 athletes okay. to volunteer across all sport. They, they, they wanted 15, they got 15. And it, apparently it wasn't hard to get volunteers because athletes are invested in clean sport. Um, and so I, I don't know what's next, but that, was, that program I think is winding down. Um, and in terms of you know, when, when things can resume, I know Travis Tigart has made a statement that they'll, they'll try to push like a, an aggressive regimen to kind of make up for lost time. Um, but there's still going to be kind of a, a, a gap um, internationally. And I'm not totally sure, and maybe you can kind of speak to this as far as whether there's a ton of information for or against long-term effects of doping. Um, 
so theoretically being this far away from a summer Olympics or from a world championships in skiing or a winter Olympics, uh, what, what do you, what would the effects be in terms of if people were able to abuse the lack of testing right now? Um, do you think that that would make a significant impact on the summer Olympics or, you know, the fifth world championships next season. So, I mean, as an endurance athlete, I know that you, that I always tried to train as hard as I possibly could to the point that I thought my body could recover. Because if you go beyond the point that your body can recover, then your training is actually doing more harm than good. And so one of the biggest things that doping does, you know, depending on the type of doping, but certainly increasing your blood oxygen levels um, or the, or your blood, the blood, the oxygen carrying capacity of your blood is it helps you recover faster. And so doping in the off season, doping in your training season, when you're a long ways from your competition has a huge benefit in allowing you to train harder than your competitors. And so it might, it might not be the, you know, the doping or the increased red blood cell count during the competition that is actually giving you the edge. It could be that you just simply were able to train harder than all of your competitors because you were doping to help recover. And the same with, uh, with certain sports that are, that are really injury prone is that doping can help you recover from injury faster. And so if you are able to push the limits and and you get hurt and then you're able to, you know, to use, uh, prohibited techniques to help yourself come back faster. That's a huge advantage in your sport. And so, uh, doping is not something that has to be done only during the, the competition that you're trying to, you know, to peak at. It can be, it can be done in the off season, uh, far away from the high, you know, far away from the cameras and, and far away from the, from the news media. And that can make the difference when the Olympics come. And so, there's always a risk of doping, which is why we need, you know, robust, worldwide, uh, out of competition, unannounced testing as much as we possibly can. Um, one, la- one last thing I have for you is inter- on kind of that same line of the Summer Olympics being postponed. Um, and something you spoke to a little bit earlier was in terms of kind of um, serving penalties for doping. I, a lot of these penalties are sort of built um, – based around like a four-year cycle, like a four-year ban. Um, And a lot of those would have lapsed after Tokyo 2020, but now some of those athletes um, will be eligible eligible to compete in the Summer Olympics since now it will be August 2021. And um, a number that I saw that was pretty surprising was there was 163 track and field athletes that their ban, their sentence will expire before the end of this year and another 51 can return in May of next year. So there's a total of 214 um, athletes just in track and field who will be now be eligible for the next Olympics. Um, and there's caveats there as far as some of those athletes have retired or maybe those athletes weren't medal contenders. But what are your thoughts on that in terms of um, just – sending a message for clean sport and, and how all these, these sentences and doping bans work. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is, this to me highlights the need for uh, a systematic overhaul of the world anti-doping system. And, 
so I, to be clear, I do not believe that we should be arbitrarily extending the length of suspension of athletes because the Olympics were postponed. I believe that if your suspension is over, if you're if you've served your ban, um, you should be allowed to come back. But what I think that this highlights is the uh, the inconsistent nature of how anti-doping works worldwide and why we need anti-doping systems that are sport dependent. And the only way that you get that is by having anti-doping systems that are, uh, that are collectively bargained with athletes. Um, and this is, this is a little radical because this is the way that, uh, that the professional sports in this country, um, their anti-doping systems are subject to collective bargaining. They're part of their, um, their full collective bargaining agreements that, that, you know, defines their compensation and defines the, the minimum salary for rookies, etc. Um, and I believe, um, I believe in robust anti-doping systems, but I also believe that those systems will be better enforced and more uh, applicable to each sport if they're collectively bargained. And this is where my work with USADA overlapped with my work with Global Athlete, is I truly believe that a strong athlete voice in every single sport on the international level that has the ability, that has real power to shape sports governance in their sport would make sport healthier across the board. And so I, you know, I, the Martin Jandrud Sunby two-month suspension that fell, I believe, in August and September for uh, high levels of, uh, for high levels of an asthma medication uh, is totally meaningless to a cross country skier. And it was just so evident that the system was broken when that suspension was held, that was handed down because two months in August and September means absolutely nothing. If those two months had come in, you know, February and March of 2018 and he had missed the Olympics, it would have been a much, much bigger deal. And the fact that the, the way that the system is written right now, that those two things are equivalent, uh, is, is just patently absurd. And, you know, the, so the system in Major League Baseball, suspensions are for number of games um, or mandatory missing the postseason. Um, and so I'm not saying that like the, the NFL and MLB anti-doping systems are, are models that we should all be following or that those sports are, are clean or perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that the athlete voice and the athlete power in those sports, uh, is one that, uh, not only benefits the athletes financially and their welfare across the board and benefits the sports as a whole, but also benefits the anti-doping system in terms of consistency and in terms of buy-in. And so uh, that was a long answer to your question, but I do feel like uh, the, the, the athletes that are serving those suspensions um, in track and field or any other sport that are now going to be eligible for the game should be allowed to compete because that's the way the rules are written, but that the rules need to be rewritten and they need to be rewritten with a with an equal voice from athletes who have real power to shape the rules of their sport. What else? Um, what didn't I ask as far as are there other things about this topic that you were hoping to speak to? Um, 
you know, I guess just to be clear is like, I'm talking about, uh, worldwide unionized athletes. Um, and I think that there's a hesitancy to use that word, uh, because it's so political, but, but it's the definition of a union is that athletes, uh, should be able to take collective action, um, to hold accountable, uh, the administrators of these sports, uh, on the world stage. And that includes the IOC, that includes WADA, and it includes the international sports federations like FIS, like the IAAF, like, uh, the global swimming sports administration body, etc. And so this is, uh, this is what my work around global athlete is centered around. And it really is the overlap of my, my interest in continuing to be involved in the in the sports world with my interest in kind of a career in equity issues is really uh, labor rights, labor power. Um, I believe that is one of the ways that we get to a more equitable world. And I believe that that's true in sport and beyond sport. Thanks for listening.